You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Today we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23. And before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for your word and for the truth that is, is written in it. It is truth, it is only truth, and it is a revelation of who you are and what you have done. And it is accurate and true, and we can trust it because it is reliable, and, and we are grateful for all of these things, that you have accurately communicated truth to us and preserved it for us, so that we might have it in our own language, and that we might be able to meditate upon it and reflect upon it and learn from it. And so we pray that your spirit would be our guide and our teacher this morning and that you would be glorified in our hearts as we meditate upon these things. Help us to think clearly and help all that we believe and say to be guided and directed by the text and only the text we pray in Christ's name. Amen. That first Sunday morning uh, of the resurrection, the first day of the resurrection from morning all the way through till evening was a day of a a flurry of activity and a lot of moving parts and things happening and It's difficult sometimes to put all the pieces together and to keep track of everything that was happening. Um, You can imagine that by the time lunch had rolled around that there were all kinds of rumors and speculations circulating about because uh, the talk of the town on that resurrection day was the fact that the stone had been rolled away from the sepulcher and that there was no body inside the sepulcher and that nobody had been able to find a body all the way the whole day long. And uh, as you can imagine, as the disciples began to hear of the reports of, of these things, and then the reports of other disciples who said they went to the tomb and saw it for themselves, and then you had reports from women saying that they had seen angels, and angels were talking about him being alive and being resurrected. And, and you had reports of women saying that they had seen Jesus alive, the same Jesus who hung on the cross. They saw him alive. And then there were all kinds of other rumors that were circulating, too, and these were not good rumors. These were the rumors that said, yes, the stone is rolled away from the sepulcher, and yes, the tomb is empty, and yes, we haven't found a body, but it was the disciples who stole the body. And so all of that was starting to circulate as well, and all of this was the talk of the town. And of course, they had it on good authority that the disciples had stolen the body because the Roman soldiers were there, and they were there sleeping when it happened. And so, of course, they would know, right, that it was disciples who stole the body, even though they were asleep. I mean, those are just details, but we have it on good authority that the disciples stole the body, and and that, of course, made the disciples marked men. And all of that, all of the details of that day and all of their presuppositions and all of their understanding of who Christ was and what he came to do and what they were expecting him to do, all of that had to be swirling around in their minds with the rumors and the reports and now the false accusations that they had stolen the body. It would have been very difficult for the disciples to put all of those pieces together and to make sense out of everything that had happened that day and everything that they were hearing they still, by that evening, would not have been able to put all of this together and really understand what had happened and the implications of what had happened. And Jesus did not appear to the disciples early in the morning as a gathered group. He, he, they were not the first ones to whom he appeared. They are not the second ones to whom he appeared, or the third ones, 
or the fourth ones. We've already looked at four of the resurrection appearances. Jesus did not appear to the disciples as a group until Sunday evening. And that takes us now to John chapter 20, uh, verse 19. Last week, we looked at the three resurrection appearances that happened between verse 18 and 19. And uh, so far, then we have Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene, just to review, Mary Magdalene, then to the other women, then to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then to Peter, and that's the appearance uh, just to Peter, not to the other disciples. We don't know anything about that. Again, we've not given any details. It's not recorded. But those are the four resurrection appearances that happened on that Sunday morning and during the course of the day. And now we are at Sunday evening as we pick up in John 20, verse 19, and we'll read the text together, 19 through 23. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... Their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Verse 23 is something of a difficult verse to interpret and to to, uh, understand. We'll get to that before we are done today. This is the same resurrection appearance, by the way, that is recorded in that passage in Luke 24 that we read at the beginning of the uh, the service. Luke uh, gives some details that John doesn't. John gives some details that Luke doesn't. But they are parallel accounts of the same appearance that uh, took place that Sunday evening, and Luke focuses in on something specific, namely Jesus calming their fears and showing, proving to them that he was risen from the dead. John focuses on something else, uh, the commission. And so we're going to see that on this evening, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, he did three things for them. First, he calmed them. Second, he convinced them that he was risen from the dead. And then third, he commissioned them. He calmed them, convinced them, and then commissioned them. And if you're keeping notes and keeping track, that's going to be our outline for this morning. So let's look at first Jesus' calming of his disciples, beginning in verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now, we don't know exactly where this was that the disciples were gathered together. It was someplace with doors. Obviously, the text says that. And they were shut and they were shut for fear of the Jews. And we don't know uh, uh, anywhere in Jerusalem where this would have been. A lot of people suspect that it was in the same place where Jesus met with his disciples on Thursday evening when he gave them the farewell discourse and enjoyed the final supper with them. Even though it was a year ago that we were talking about the events in John 13 or more than a year ago, it was only a couple of days in terms of where the disciples were at. So we could assume that that place would still probably be open and available. They had met there. That may have been the gathering place for them. And they were uh, they were there. And John says that the disciples were gathered there. Luke calls them the eleven. Though we know from John specifically that one of them was missing, and that's down in verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So who was gathered there this evening? We know that John says it was the disciples, though it's not all of the disciples, because he specifically mentions one that was absent. Luke refers to them as the eleven, probably just a technical term referring to the group of disciples, though, again, John is more specific, and it wasn't all eleven of them that were left. Uh, Thomas wasn't there. And Luke mentions that there were others who were gathered there as well. And then we know that the two disciples that had traveled with Jesus to Emmaus, when they returned to Jerusalem, they arrived at this meeting. So they were there. So when they came in, they were reporting to these disciples who were gathered there that they had seen Jesus on the road. And these disciples who were gathered there were saying, yes, we know he has risen and he has appeared to Peter. And that sets up this meeting that they had that evening. Now, it says in the text that the doors were shut. And the word means 
shut. It can sometimes be translated locked. Sometimes it does mean locked. There's a couple times in Scripture where it refers to the doors of a prison being shut and the implication uh, being shut tightly or being locked. And so um, the word can, can mean that, they were locked. And John specifically says that they were locked because the disciples feared the Jews. And by Jews, it doesn't just mean any Jewish people or anybody who happened to be a Jew. John is using the term Jews in terms to, to mean specifically the Jewish leadership. That's how he uses it throughout the book. So they were in fear of Annas and Caiaphas and the Pharisees, the very ones whom they had watched plot and plan and execute the murder of Jesus. They were in fear of them. Uh, why were they in fear of them? Because they would suspect that having put Jesus to death, that maybe the religious leaders would turn and that they would be the next mark, that they would be the ones that they would come, at, come after next. Um, and remember, they are inside Jerusalem, so they are in hostile territory. This is enemy territory. They're right in the den of the, the lion's den, as it were, and they are surrounded not by people who are sympathetic with them at all. And then keep in mind that on top of all of that, you have the report that it was the disciples who stole the body. Grave robbing was a capital crime. Breaking a Roman seal was a capital crime. So with that, with that rumor circulating that the disciples had stolen the body, if the religious leaders actually believed that the disciples stole the body, then they would be coming after the disciples. But the religious leaders didn't actually believe that the disciples stole the body, did they? No, they didn't. They knew that it was just a story that they fabricated and they paid the Roman guards to circulate that rumor and that story. So that is why they are fearful. And then John says that Jesus came and he stood in the midst of them. Now, how did Jesus get into that room if the doors were shut or locked? Let's assume for a moment that the word means locked and that John intends here not just that the doors were uh, not just that the doors were shut, but that the doors were locked. Have you ever heard it said, and I won't ask you to raise your hand, but maybe just nod quietly or slowly. Have you ever heard it said or taught that our resurrected bodies will be able to walk through walls? That when we are in a resurrected state, that we will be able to pass through solid objects and walk through walls. Well, here's how that, here's how that doctrine, here's how that doctrine is built. They point to this text. See, the doors were obviously locked. And if the doors were locked, then the only way that Jesus could get in there, because he couldn't come through a locked door, is to walk through a wall, obviously. Now, since Scripture says that our resurrected bodies will be like His, because He is the first fruits of our resurrection, and our glorified and resurrected bodies will be like unto His, similar to His, and that would be Philippians chapter 3 that teaches that, uh, and uh, Romans chapter 8, I think, likewise teaches that, then it must be the case that if Jesus could walk through walls, that you and I, when we are raised, we will be able to walk through walls as well. That's how the teaching goes. You probably heard that, and and though there are Bible teachers who teach that even fervently and believe that even fervently, um, men whose ministries I respect and support and men whose ministries I love, I would say that I have to respectfully demur. That means to raise an objection or to, to contradict it, for those of you who may have gone to school in Clarkport. I have to respectfully demur and, and, and disagree with that. And I will, I will tell you why I disagree with that from this text. Now, keep in mind that if you believe that resurrection bodies can pass through walls, it doesn't make you a heretic. If you don't believe that resurrection bodies can pass through walls, that doesn't make you a heretic. This is not an issue of orthodoxy. This is an issue, I think, of being specific with what the text actually says and what the text does not actually say. So let me explain to you why I do not believe that our resurrected bodies will be able to pass through walls. Number one, Scripture nowhere else says that. When you ask somebody, why do you believe that Jesus' resurrected body could pass through a wall? They will always turn to this passage. See, 
the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood in the midst of them. So, of course, he must have walked through the wall in his glorified body in order to get into the room. That's the assumption that is made. But there is no other passage of Scripture that anybody can ever turn to that says that glorified bodies can walk through walls. Even when Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the largest passage in all of Scripture, detailing the nature of resurrection bodies, even in that passage, Paul says nothing about resurrected bodies being able to pass through solid objects. He doesn't say anything like that. There's no other passage of Scripture that says anything about our resurrection bodies being able to pass through solid objects in this realm. Further, notice that this text does not say anything about Jesus' body passing through a wall. What does it say? Verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. Does it say he walked through a wall to get in there? You say, but Jim, the doors were locked. How else would he get in there if the doors were locked? Because we all know that locked doors are Jesus' kryptonite, right? They came up and he rattled the handle and he said, oh, foiled again. I guess I'll have to walk through the door. Is there any other possible explanation as to how he got into the room if the doors were locked? And we're assuming now that the doors were locked and not just shut. Well, there are a couple of other possible suggestions. One of them could be that Jesus simply opened the doors. I mean, if you believe that he can walk through walls, you must believe that he can at least pick a lock, right? Or that he can simply will that locks mean nothing, and he can open up a locked door just by turning the handle. Why? Because he is the divine son, and he can do so. And, and if that is how it happened, if he walked up, and he opened up the door, and walked in and stood in their midst, how would you describe that if you were John? You would say that the doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood in their midst. Meaning that a locked door does not stop Jesus from entering the room. It's not like he was out of, out of options. I can't go through the locked door, so I have to walk through the wall. It is also possible, and by the way, that's what, that's what John Calvin suggests happened. So I'm, I'm not, you know, a wacko for believing this. Um, the second option is that it's possible that Jesus was in the room all along, but he was invisible to the disciples. We've already seen in previous resurrection accounts, appearances, that Jesus could make himself visible or invisible depending on the circumstances. In Luke chapter 24, when the two men were on the road to Emmaus and they arrived at Emmaus and they sat down that evening and were eating bread, it says that Jesus what? Vanished from their sight. Did he have to get up and walk through a wall to vanish from their sight? Or can he just simply disappear and make himself invisible? Is it not possible that Jesus could have walked into that room with the disciples, hung out over in the corner with his hands in his robe like this, and listened to the whole conversation that evening, making himself invisible to them so that they could not see him, and watched them as they locked the doors and, and shut it and, and waited for people to arrive and give the right password before they could come in? And then the two men from Emmaus arrived and said, Hey, we saw the Lord on the road. And, and then the other disciples say, and yeah, we, Peter saw him, the Lord risen as well. And then Jesus made himself visible to them. Is it possible that he was in the room the whole time? I think it is possible that he was in the room the whole time. But you say, Jim, but it doesn't say that he actually opened up the door and walked in. And you're right, it does not say that. But it does not say that he walked through a wall either, does it? It doesn't say that he was in the room the whole time. You're right, but it doesn't say that he walked through a wall either, does it? In other words, it is possible for us, and I think we have, in many circles, made more out of this than is justified. Uh, Leon Morris, in his commentary, uh, gives a, a, a measured response to this, and he says, and I think this is advice that is well, we would do well to heed. Leon Morris says this, Scripture says nothing of the mode of Jesus' entry into the room. We do well not to attempt to describe it closely. We can scarcely say more than that the risen Jesus was not limited by closed doors. Miraculously, he stood among them, but the precise way he did it is not indicated. End quote. And that's true. The precise way that he did this is not indicated. 
Even if we grant that the doors were locked, and even if we grant that Jesus, the God-man in his glorified body, had the ability to walk through a solid object, it does not follow that we, in our glorified state, will have the ability to do the exact same thing. Is it not possible that the God-man had certain capabilities with his glorified state that you and I will not have? I think that that is possible. So therefore, we do not say that we assume that the doors were locked and not shut. We assume that Jesus couldn't get through a locked door. We assume that he was not in the room with them the whole time. We assume that the only way into that room was for him to pass through a door. And we assume that our resurrection bodies will be able to do everything that his resurrection body could do. If we make all of those assumptions, then yes, our resurrected bodies will be able to pass through walls. But I am not, and neither should you be, in the habit of building our doctrine on all kinds of assumptions and inferences. What can we say about the text? Locked doors do not stop Jesus from coming wherever he wants to go. That is as much as we can make. We cannot say with confidence, and neither will I ever teach, that resurrection bodies can pass through solid objects. Now, if you believe that resurrection bodies can pass through solid objects in this realm, you're not a heretic. And if you don't believe it, you're not a heretic. It's not an issue of orthodoxy. It's an issue for me of being precise with the text and saying, what does the text actually teach? And I think if we do that, we cannot conclude that Jesus' resurrection body can pass through solid objects. Now, if it is true that resurrection and glorified bodies cannot walk through walls, then the day of the resurrection is going to be a hoot for me. Because I'm going to sit in my lawn chair and watch a whole bunch of people who think they can pass through walls try. And some of you will be running for your first attempt. And if it's not true that you can pass through a wall, I'm going to enjoy those first few hours of resurrection day. Okay, so does Jesus walk through a wall in order to get into the room? I don't think we can say that. Okay, we need to be precise with the text. It doesn't say that he actually did. So, what is his greeting? Having gone through all of that, what is his greeting to them? He says to them, peace be with you. And this is not just a throwaway greeting like, hey, how you doing? Or hello, or hey, nothing like that. This is actually a, a, this is actually a greeting that is intended to calm their hearts. It is intended to settle them in their fears. Luke says that when he appeared appeared to them, that they were frightened, that they were terrified, and that they were disturbed over this. And and you can understand why why they were fearful. They were fearful not only because they were afraid of the Jews, and Jesus knew that, but he, he, and all of the uncertainty that would go with that. But now that they are seeing him in their midst, they are assuming or thinking that they saw, according to Luke chapter 24, they're thinking that they saw a spirit, some sort of an apparition, and they don't even know what to make of this. Remember, they're, they're not expecting or anticipating a resurrection, particularly a bodily resurrection. Uh, they're not expecting any of that. And so they were terrified when they saw him standing in their midst. So the very first words out of his mouth are peace to you, and he is intending there to calm their anxious and troubled and fearful hearts There's something else he is intending to do there. And I think it is interesting that Jesus' words, his first words to them, are not words of scorn or rebuke or reproof. Because remember, these are the same 11 men, well, 10, Thomas not there. These are the same group of men who in his hour of greatest need and crisis fled from him. And other than John, we don't know that any other disciple even was near the cross and watched the Lord die. They were all somewhere else as far as we know. And yet Jesus' first words to this group of men who had fled, and even Peter being there, the one who had denied him, is not rebuke, it's not reproof, it's not scorn. That might be what you and I would want to do. You and I might want to say, okay, listen, guys, really, Thursday night, you couldn't wait with me? You couldn't sit with me? You couldn't stay with me during all of that? You left? You fled? After three years together, this is how you repay me? That would be our inclination, but that's not Jesus at all. Just words of grace and kindness. And he calms their hearts. 
That's what he did first, calmed them. Second, he convinced them. Convinced them that he was actually risen from the dead. Look at verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Now, this is the point, or this is the part of that evening in verse 20 where Luke gives us details that John does not give. Luke kind of fills in something that was going on here because Luke mentions that Jesus showed them his hands and his feet as well. And Luke mentions uh, the reason for doing this, that Jesus was convincing them that he was actually risen from the dead. So here's what Luke says in Luke 24, verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch, and, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. This was all intended and designed by Jesus to convince them that he was risen from the dead. Because they thought that they were seeing an apparition. Maybe something similar to what uh, Saul, yes, to what Saul conjured up through the medium spiritist when he brought Samuel back into this realm. Maybe they thought that they were seeing some spiritual entity, some spiritual apparition before them, and they didn't know what to make of this, and it terrified them, and, and rightly so. But this was not a spiritual apparition. This was a real, physical body that had been raised from the dead. And Jesus, in showing them his hands and his feet, and as John says, his side, and remember that John was the one who was standing by the foot of the cross when the spear was thrust into his side. So these markings on Jesus John was an eyewitness to these things. So it's, it's, it's not surprising that John would mention that he showed them his side as well. Luke focuses in on the hands and the feet. All of those wounds which spoke of his suffering and his affliction, Jesus showed them. And, and, and don't think in terms of a, a wound that is, that is healing or in the process of healing. This is a glorified body. So we're probably talking about indentations in the skin or holes or scar tissue of some sort. Something that indicated his passion and his suffering. Uh, but not, not wounds that were still needing to heal. Remember, this is not a resuscitation. It is a resurrection, and it is a resurrection into a glorified state or a glorified body. So what was Jesus actually trying to do? He was trying to show them that it was he himself. That's the first thing, that it was he himself. It is I myself. See, his spirit does not have flesh and bones, you see, that I have. In other words, this is not his long-lost twin who has arrived now to convince the disciples that he was actually risen from the dead. And yes, that is one of the bizarre explanations for the resurrection accounts that skeptics and critics offer. That, that, that this person was actually uh, Jesus' long-lost twin, and he showed up, and now he's convincing the disciples. Uh, no long-lost twin would be able to point to the holes in your hands and feet and the side and be able to say, see, that is I myself, and not another, and not another. And second, he is intending to demonstrate to them that this was actually, the body of his resurrection is actually the very same body that hung on the cross and that died on the cross that, Thursday, that Friday afternoon. It was the very same body. It was not another body. And contrast that with the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Here's what Jehovah's Witnesses teach about the resurrection of Christ. They believe that the body of Jesus in his resurrection was not the same body that hung on the cross. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the body that hung on the cross dissolved into gases and vanished in the tomb. And that the resurrection of Jesus was not a real physical bodily resurrection, but was actually a spiritual resurrection. And that the body in which he appeared was a physical body manufactured just for the appearances in order to demonstrate to the disciples that he was risen from the dead. When in fact, I guess he wasn't really bodily resurrected from the dead. And Jehovah's Witness to say that's why many people did not recognize him is because the body was a different body. So it was like the body that angels appear in. When angels appear in bodily form, it was sort of a body 
taken up or, 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 or fabricated for that purpose of appearing. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses teach. But is that what's going on here? What does Jesus say? It is I myself. See? Same body. Look, these are the hands that were nailed to the cross. These are the feet that were nailed to the cross. This is the side that received the Roman spear. It is, in fact, the very same body, and, th- and that is significant, because as Christians, we believe that our bodies will be resurrected. These bodies in which you sit, this body in which I stand, will be resurrected someday. That is the promise of Scripture. It will be this body with different qualities than this body has now. Different abilities and different qualities, but it is the very same body. So, Jesus is convincing the disciples that that is indeed the body in which he died. And they were amazed at this. Luke says they they couldn't even believe it for the joy and amazement that, that struck them. It is interesting that all four of the gospel writers record the unbelief of the disciples and those who saw him. All four gospel writers mention, in connection with one or more of the appearances, that the people who saw him were unbelieving. Listen to Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And that refers to the appearance to over 500 people when Jesus gave the Great Commission. They worshipped him, but there were some there who were doubtful. And they didn't quite believe yet. Mark 16:14 says, Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And that seems to be this, this meeting that Mark is mentioning there. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen, referring to the women who had seen him. Luke 24, verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. That refers to the report of the women. They came back and told the disciples, and Luke says, the disciples, they they thought this was nonsense, and they did not believe the reports of the women. John 20, verse 25, in this very chapter, look down at verse 25, when Thomas is told by the disciples that they had seen the Lord. Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And then Luke 24, 25 says, He said to them, the two men on the road to Emmaus, so foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. What characterized the resurrection appearances? Belief? Unbelief. They were amazed. And even here in Luke 24, Luke says that they could not believe this. They could not believe what their eyes were seeing. Can you sympathize with that just a little bit? We saw him hanging on the cross. We saw him die. We saw him be put in in grave clothes. We saw him put in a tomb. We saw the stone rolled against the tomb. We know that he was dead. And yet this event of the resurrection was the most magnificent thing that had ever happened to them in their lifetime. That even though they saw with their very eyes the scars in his hands and a resurrected body, they could not bring themselves to believe that they were actually seeing what they were seeing. Have you ever thought that your eyes were deceiving you when you saw something that was so fantastic that you really couldn't even actually believe that this was actually happening? Take that and times it by a hundred. That's what it would have been like for the disciples. They couldn't actually believe this because of the joy and because of the amazement. And so Jesus said to them, and probably sensing that they could not believe this, he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it in their presence. Why did Jesus do that? To prove to them what? That it was a real body. Spirits do not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And this indicates something to us of the nature of resurrection bodies. Now, in case I crushed all of your hopes that you're going to be able to walk through walls, when you get into heaven, I don't even know what the point of walking through a wall is or why we would want to do that or expect to do that. In case I crushed your hope and took away your safety blanket and you feel dejected now that, okay, I don't even know what I'm going to be able to enjoy in my resurrection body. There are some things here that are indicative to us of what our resurrection body is going to be like. Our resurrection body will be able to, like Jesus, it will be a physical body, a real physical body. Jesus said, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Flesh 
and bones, real bones, real flesh in a resurrected body. Further, there is a one-to-one correspondence between the body that they put in the tomb on Friday evening afternoon and the body that walked out of that tomb Sunday morning. It wasn't a different body. It was the same body resurrected and glorified with different qualities, different characteristics. It was a spiritual body. It was a glorified body. It was a glorious body and a powerful body. But it was the same body, but the same body with different characteristics. And yet there is a correspondence because he showed them the wounds in his hands and his feet. So it is the same body with different characteristics. And further, Jesus was able to eat. Now, in case you were disappointed that you're not going to be able to walk through walls, let me make it up to you. You're going to be able to eat in your glorified body. I think that that is something that we are going to be able to do because Scripture promises that we will sit down and we will eat and drink with him in the kingdom. There will be a wedding feast. And all of his people will be gathered around that table. And the Lord himself will serve us, his bride. And we will eat and we will drink and we will enjoy those delights of having a real physical body. And when he recreates this new heaven, this earth into the new heavens and the new earth, that new heavens and that new earth will be this creation resurrected. Just as there is a one-to-one correspondence between this, this body and the body that we will get, in that it is the same body with different characteristics, So it is that the new heavens and the new earth is this creation, but reborn, redone, and resurrected. So that we get to live and dwell in physical bodies of flesh and bone on a real, brand new earth, uncorrupted by sin, where defilement and disease and death and sin and corruption cannot enter in ever again, because death as the final enemy has been taken away. And we will get to live and dwell in that with all of the delights. And Revelation, not speaking metaphorically or allegorically or just symbolically, Revelation speaks of trees and rivers and streets of gold and palaces and walls and gates and stones and people. And Isaiah even speaks of animals being in that kingdom. It's going to be a brand new creation. Real, physical bodies. That's better. I'd rather be able to eat in a new glorified body then walk through a wall. (laughs) Even if I have to walk all the way around the entrance to get to the cafeteria, I will just be delighted that I can enjoy the delights of the cafeteria and heavenly food and heavenly fruit on a brand new creation, new heavens and new earth. No care how far I have to walk to get there. All right. He calmed them. He convinced them. And now look at the commission. He commissioned them. Beginning in verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. There's, there's, two, there's, there's three statements there in three verses. And two of them, these, these are in increasing difficulty. There's nothing difficult to understand about peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Uh, this is Jesus commissioning them. He, he is telling them, look, I am risen. But don't think that this means that now you're going to sit around in hammocks and just enjoy uh, the, enjoy the shade all day. He has a mission for them, and their mission is to take the gospel out into the world. He is reminding them of something that he had said to them only Thursday, only the previous Thursday evening. In, in maybe that very same room in which they were meeting now, Jesus had said to them uh, that he was going away to the Father, and he was leaving them there, and he was going to leave them the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 17, when they were uh, on their way out of Jerusalem, and Jesus was praying for the disciples in the high priestly prayer, Jesus said this, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. John 17, verse 18. You, just as you have sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. They had heard this. And now it is only four evenings later, and they are hearing him repeat the same thing he said to them Thursday evening. 
Just as the Father has sent me, so send I you. The Father sent me into the world with a message and a mission and a work to do. I have accomplished that work. I'm going back to the Father. And now I am giving you a message, a mission, and a work to do. And you now, this is yours to obey. You now must go out with this message. And what is the message that we are called to proclaim? It is the message, I believe, that Jesus is implying in verse 23, which we'll get to in just a second. So there's the commissioning. As the Father has sent me into the world, so I am sending you. He is reminding them of what he had said to them on Thursday evening. The second statement is in verse 23. Uh, Sorry, the end of verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And what's going on there? He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. There are some charismatic and quasi-charismatic groups as well who believe that what Jesus did here was actually give the Holy Spirit to his disciples at this moment, to all of those who were gathered there. That they at this time actually received the Holy Spirit. And they believe this because this is how they get um, this is how they get their doctrine of, of subsequence, that you can receive the Holy Spirit and be saved, and yet at some point later have another pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which results in you speaking in tongues and having these supernatural manifestations, like on the day of Pentecost. So they say, see, here it is. The disciples got the Spirit here as sort of a pre or mini Pentecost. And then later on, 50 days later from this date, they would receive the Holy Spirit again, but this time it would be accompanied by manifestations of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues and miracles and things like that. So this is how they get that, that doctrine. They say that the disciples at this point actually really received the Holy Spirit. I don't think that that's what's going on here. In breathing on them and saying to them, receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus was doing three things. First of all, he was reminding them of the things that he had said to them again that Thursday evening. Remember when we looked at the upper room discourse and the farewell discourse in verses, chapter 13 through 17? There were four times in that extended discourse where Jesus spoke of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And he called him the Spirit of Truth, and all four times he called the Holy Spirit the Helper. Well, if we are being sent out into the world, a hostile world that hates us and hates the light and hates the truth, and we are being sent out with a mission, just as the Father has sent him, so he is sending us. And we ought to expect the same type of hostility and opposition that he faced. If that is indeed what is being spoken of in verse 21, then we're going to need a helper for that, aren't we? And I think that that is what Jesus is doing here. This is part of the commissioning. He is saying to them, do you remember Thursday night? I told you about the spirit of truth. I told you about the helper, the one who would enable you and strengthen you and be with you and never leave you, whom I would send and whom the Father would send. That is the one that you are going to be receiving. So he is reminding them of those promises from Thursday night. A second thing Jesus is doing here is, I think, indicating something of his divine nature. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 9 through 14, the spirit of God is likened The Holy Spirit is likened to the breath of God, where God breathes out his Holy Spirit and and things happen. There is rebirth and regeneration. And I think that Jesus, in doing this, in breathing upon them and saying, receive to them the Holy Spirit, he is hearkening back to that prophecy in Ezekiel 37, verses 9 through 14. And he is saying to them, as one who is one with the Father, I told you I was going to send the Spirit because the Father would send the Spirit. And as one who has who is in a position of authority and oneness with God, I can give and direct the Holy Spirit to you. There's something of his divine nature that is being indicated here. No mere man could ever say something like this. It would be bizarre if I walked up to you and breathed on you and said, receive the Holy Spirit. As if I have the ability, the power, the position, or authority to to dispense the Holy Spirit like that. And Jesus is demonstrating to the disciples, remember the one that I told you I was going to send? Yeah? I'm still going to send him. And the third thing he's doing is he's looking forward to the day of Pentecost. This is... This is a symbolism that is rich in meaning and rich in significance. And Jesus is pointing them forward to that promise that was to come. It is as if he is saying, what I promised, it's still going to happen. You will still receive the Holy Spirit. 
just as I promised, and I, as one with the Father, will send him, because that's what I promised that you would do. So I'm sending you, and I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. And now verse 23, which is the most difficult statement to interpret. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that we have the power to forgive sins? It kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? If you come from a Roman Catholic background, then when you read a verse like that, you are hearing there in those words probably the authority that is taken up by the priest, proclaimed by the priesthood, who says that they have the ability to absolve you of your sins. So if you commit a sin, you need to go in and confess that to the priest so that he can pronounce you forgiven or so that he can so that he can give you forgiveness or at least give you something to do to get forgiveness, give you some work to do or some penance to pay in order to get forgiveness. That is how the Roman Catholic Church understands this, that an, an ability and an authority to forgive sins has been granted to God's representatives here on earth through the apostles and then ecclesiastically to those who are the successors of the apostles, meaning the pope and the priest. That's how it's taken. But I don't think that that's what Jesus is is saying here. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that you and I have been given power to forgive people of their sins or to not forgive people of their sins. That is a prerogative that belongs only with God. And Jesus said that. And they understood that. And Scripture teaches this emphatically. Only God can forgive sins. That's, that's his domain. That's his prerogative. So what is Jesus saying then when he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven. If they retain the sins of any, they will be retained. He's not saying we have the power to forgive sins, as if I can say, well, you, I like you, so your sins are forgiven, but you not so much because you fall asleep a lot, so you can keep your, you can keep your sins on you, uh, and you all forgive yours, but not you, and you I like, so that's not the power that we are given. That's not what Jesus is describing. What he is saying, and it is, it is a rabbinic formula similar to what we read in the Gospels when Jesus says, that which is bound on earth will be bound in heaven, and that which is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. It was a rabbinical, a rabbi, a way of talking the rabbis would use, uh, of an authority that would be given to pronounce or proclaim on earth what had been decreed in heaven. So when Jesus says, for instance, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, he is not saying that you and I can bind Satan, as is commonly but mistakenly taught. He's not giving some power to bind Satan. What he is saying is that which has already been decreed in heaven is that which you announce on earth. And in the context, it is even talking about in church discipline. We have the authority as a church and as a church leadership that when we excommunicate someone or we discipline somebody in our midst, we are doing and acting out on earth what has already been decreed in heaven. And it is a similar statement here. If you retain the sins or you, you, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins will be forgiven. It is a rabbinic formula, and what is being said is this. We are, our job, as, our, as those who are sent and empowered by the Holy Spirit, is to announce the terms of forgiveness. What heaven has decreed, we announce on earth. Have you repented of your sin and trusted Jesus Christ for salvation and been born again? If so, your sins are forgiven. You're justified in the sight of God. I can say that with absolute confidence because that is the message we have been called to declare. That is not a message we make up. That's not a message that comes from man. That's a message that comes straight out of Scripture. And so you never see the disciples ever in any of their writings or even in the book of Acts ever saying this. Okay, your sins are forgiven. Yours are not. You need to do more confession or more penance. You never see them doing that. What you do see them saying is there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Turn and repent this day and be baptized in his name for the forgiveness of sins. And if you and your household believe, you will be saved. What they do, what they, we do see them doing is proclaiming what heaven has decreed. And that's what we are called to do. 
We are called to announce the terms of forgiveness. You want forgiveness of your sins? You want a clean conscience? You want eternal life? These are the terms. Repentance and belief upon the Son of God. Likewise, these are the terms of damnation. You remain impenitent and unbelieving, and you die in your sins, unforgiven and unborn again, not born again. You will perish everlastingly, and your sins will rest upon your head for all of eternity. That is what we are called to proclaim. And I think that is what he is saying in verse 23. If we, we announce the sins that have been forgiven, because we have confidence that upon his terms, those who meet those terms will have their sins forgiven. We announce damnation, because these are the terms of damnation, impenitence, and unbelief. And so we are merely declaring to people what God has already decreed and declared. And that seems to be the best way of understanding verse 23. Here's what we take away from this. Of course, number one, I don't believe a resurrection bodies will be able to pass through the walls. Number two, resurrection bodies will be able to eat and enjoy food. And number three, that you and I are the spiritual descendants of the apostles. In this sense, that we have been given the very same commission that they were given. We are to go because he has sent us. We're to go into the world. We're to go to our neighbors. We're to go to our family. We're to go to our friends. We're to go to our coworkers and our bosses and everybody in which, uh, everybody in whose sphere God has placed us. And we are to uh, do so in the power of the Holy Spirit with this message. If you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you do not, you will be damned. That is God's pronunciation, that, a pronouncement to you. That is God's promise to you. We are proclaiming what heaven has already decreed. We are, we are announcing what heaven announces. That is our mission. So let's do it with grace and let's do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. And again, we are thankful for the time that we can spend in it, the freedom to do this to meditate upon these things and to reflect upon the glories of resurrection and the glories of Christ's resurrection and what it means for us. Because he has risen, we have been given this commission to go and to preach and to make disciples of all nations. That is what you have left us here to do. So we pray that you would make us faithful in that, faithful in that proclamation of that message and faithful to take every opportunity that you put before us. Give us and grant us those opportunities and then give us the boldness to do what you've called us to do, that you may be glorified, that you may draw sinners to yourself, and that Christ may receive the full reward for all his suffering. We thank you in his great name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.